Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On The Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, welcome everybody to Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. I think we'll have a good talkative show today, guys. Uh, We have plenty to talk about. No question about that. I'm getting my notes here. I lost my uh, intro for some reason. My internet's acting strange. But you are listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397. I think the text line from memory is 351-5357. Or talk at WDWS.com. Happy to take your texts and phone calls. Remember to talk to your own advisor before you <laughs> listen to anything we have to say and right. do it. We're really not trying to give you specific advice. We're really trying to help you and provide some clarity, guys, uh, and maybe uh, help you an- ask the right questions of your advisor. So, and you have to remember, past performance is no <laughs> indication of future results. So anything we talk about doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to... Uh, transpire in the future as they say right well fred um and i have my regular guest dr fred gertz dr fred good to see you and ryan repko certified financial planner professional at rudy wealth management good morning well obviously there's uh no shortage of things to talk about um for me fred after soon i'll be entering my 40th year um it seems like i've seen this movie so many times before but when right. I watch CNBC, it's as if they've never, it's as if that's their first uh, temporary market decline along yeah. the permanent uptrend. And I understand why investors that watch these things, you know, you can almost get bitter. Uh, it, 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 certainly frustrating comes to mind. I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not immune to it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll yell at the TV screen sometimes. Um, but then I always have to, reflect on my 40 some years you know or close to it and think gosh i've seen this so many times i know how it ends um it's kind of this typical cycle fred um why is the market down well interest rates are up why are interest rates up because the fed's tightening why is the fed tightening well because inflation's high why is inflation high well because we probably put too much money you know into the bank into m2 uh and monetized too much um debt in the government and it found its way in but anyway uh so so well, well that means the fed's going to increase interest rates further well kind of everybody knows that and now we're going to worry about a recession okay and what happens when we get a recession well by by as you've said so many times by the time we actually get the announced recession the stock market's anticipated right. the future and then uh then what happens in a recession well corporate earnings they corporations sell less stuff and then what happens well then they have lower earnings and then what happens? And then they get lean and mean and they figure out and, and, you know, they do all the painful things they probably should have done when times were really good. And then, you know, the, the recession's always, you know, good times always are the seeds of, uh, of bad times and bad times are the seeds right. of good things going forward. And then the Federal Reserve accomplishes its toll. Maybe you get a recession. Maybe we don't. We'll talk about that today. And then what happens? Uh, we go back to the permanent economic uptrend of two to three percent i used to say three almost naturally but you know two is probably fair and then what happens companies go back to selling just as much or more stuff than they did before except that the way i see it this health self-healing process they're leaner and meaner as they come out so even for the same sales revenue they tend to be more profitable and we start over and over again but the whole point is the end of the story is um the cure of for inflation is better than the disease. The market knows that. I think within a year's time, we'll see that the Fed is taking it seriously, and we're going to see that we may or may not enter a recession. I'm not so convinced we will. Uh, we'll get into that. But the whole point is, yes, the stock market's down, as it does periodically. I mean, that's the whole point. You have a permanent uptrend, and you have a stock market and an economy. 
that outruns it on the upside and outruns it on the downside. We're on, we're probably outrunning on the or we're, we've been outrunning it on the upside. Uh, we're moving towards probably overdoing it on the downside. But the thing is, we get it fixed, and the economy gets better, and we go amongst a permanent uptrend, which means stock prices ultimately not only get back to where they were, but ultimately higher. So to me, with that perspective, um, but I still have to wear my hat as an advisor, I keep thinking, okay, well, this is part of the deal. If you want the premium returns of the great companies of America and the world compared to just buying their debt or being a lender to those companies, you have to put up with the unpredictability, unpredictable nature of the market, and you have to have faith in the permanent uptrend. If you don't see the permanent uptrend and you only see the day-to-day volatility and gyrations, there's no, there's no fixing that. Um, and so to me, it, the bear markets, now we're in a bear market, and for people, you're going to read all about it, hear all about it a thousand times today. Well, at least we ought to probably define it. It's just kind of a generally accepted term, arbitrarily, when the stock market, broad U.S. market or an index, you know, it could be different sectors of the market, can be in bear markets, but they're magically down 20% or more. And then if we want to look at, and we're there, for the, for the S&P 500 as of yesterday, was down 20% from its peak. Now, from a year ago, it's down about 10%. And that's because it was up 10% first part of the year and then a full 12-month period and then fell 20%. So year over year, you're about a minus 10. So we're in a bear market. And uh, so historically, if you want to get an understanding of how this might play out, again, it's a big question of how it might play out. It's, well, they typically bottom out at somewhere around a third off. We're, we're 20% down. Doesn't mean it has to happen. The last, I would say we came, we had two real close bear markets in 2011 and 2018. They went down just about touched minus 20% and that was it. But the average is about a third off and it takes somewhere around, I think a year and a half or so before you're typically back and things are better again and back to all time highs. So again, it to me, it becomes irrelevant to some extent point to some standpoint but there are things you should do must do and then things you really should not do yeah. um, go ahead Ryan I think the way you analyze it is almost kind of like the way a doctor analyzes like somebody who has come into their office with like a, a problem you're very I just don't make the money <laughs> sure yeah you know it's it's not an emotional decision for you you're going through a series of is if this then that kind of like analysis, all right, if, if this is the case, we're in a decline, this is what's going to happen, then this is what we should expect. Um, where I think is most investors can't remove the emotion from the discussion of, the, of where we're at now. You have the, you know, the luxury of almost 40 years of market experience to kind of say, you know, I've seen this movie before. I, I'm pretty confident with a high degree of certainty of how it's going to end. And you can really allow yourself to take that emotional piece off the table, whereas most people can't do that, especially, you know, anyone who has not defined themselves as a, as a true investor, someone who knows the markets. When I think that's probably most people. Yeah, I saw it in 87. That was my first uh, baptism to uh, actually uh, managing people's livelihoods and retirement. And uh, between sunup and sundown, and one day it went down 20%, ultimately fell by about a third. Iraq War, Fred, I think it was 92-ish, um, you know, kind of scared everybody to death. We fell pretty close to 20%, and then things got better. Uh, 98, we had the Asian contagion, and, uh, you know, in a couple of months' time, the stock market fell, broad U.S. market fell 20%. That got better. Um, then we uh, had the 2000 uh, dot-com crash, where the mark, broad market fell 50%. Globally diversified portfolios fell about 20 but it was a serious bear market and a crisis of sorts, or maybe not a crisis. I guess I wouldn't include that in the crisis zone. Then, of course, we had uh, 2007, 2008, which was a global financial crisis that was, well, yeah. as big as we've seen since the, uh, the stock market mm-hmm. crash and global depression. And then, uh, so that's two th- then we saw um, really 2011, we came close to a 20% decline. 2018, the Fed started tightening towards the end of the year. Quickly fell 19, almost 20%. That got better. And here we are again. And, and, and I, when I looked at what, what $10,000 would be uh, worth today, not in real terms, in, in actual nominal dollars, 
Uh, I used Y charts yesterday and it was from January of 1984. That's the year I started through a couple of days ago. It might have even been through yesterday. The $10,000 was worth like uh, 200 and I think $70,000 mm. or $227,000. It doesn't matter the point. I mean, it's, it just went up basically 22, almost 23 times full. So we had all that noise and all those periods where people felt then just as they do today. Mm-hmm. Though, I will say, um, what is different, Fred, in this decline, and I think it's partly because what you've described a long time ago, uh, uh, many shows ago, you said this is more of your normal economic Fed-induced decline and it's not an emergency crisis like the pandemic and the great financial crisis. Right. And there's always a saying that uh, this time is different, like this is something that's never happened before. And and to a certain extent, it is slightly different because we come out of the COVID situation. And, and this is a, a combination of two things. One is supply-induced because of all the COVID issues. And secondly, it's the normal kind of thing of overspending and uh, too loose monetary policy. And those came together to create the situation we're in now. Uh, uh, people listening might ask the question, why didn't we tell them about this six months ago? And the answer is no one knew. Uh, so, again, six months ago uh, or even a year ago, inflation was not re- much of a problem. We expected to the recovery to continue. It was a much better situation than most people predicted after the, the uh, COVID crisis. And then all of a sudden, uh, inflation comes back. And, again, it's been a, a gradual kind of process. My own feeling was that it was going to be transitory, just uh, bottlenecks and so on, and that would work itself out. And obviously that was not the case. And now there's real inflation. But the, the good news is I think I don't think it's really baked in yet. Uh, the the uh, problem of inflation, which uh, we haven't seen now for uh, almost 40 years, uh, was 15 years in the making from the mid-60s until 1980. We had a combination of uh, fairly lax monetary policy along with uh, large deficits and that uh, built up over a period of time. We had huge uh, expectations about inflation in the late uh, 70s and early 80s, and that took a real uh, kind of, uh, of hard dose of medicine to get that over with. This time, uh, inflation has only been around now for a year or so, and I think the uh, Fed is well aware of the fact that they don't want inflation expectations to rise again, so they're going to take some action now. So just like going to the doctor doesn't always make you feel better the next day, the treatment may be uh, not necessarily uh, uh, good for the short term, but it's good for the long term. So I think there is the expectation that inflation will be reined in. And the evidence of that is that there's these two different measures. Uh, If you ask people about inflation, they think it's going to be bad for a long time. If you look at the markets, though, the long-term interest rates still haven't reflected the fact that we have expectations about high inflation for a long time. So the the, the, the new story, which I think is more likely correct than the old story, is that we're going to see a lessening of inflation down to probably 4 or 5% over the next year, and then it may take another uh, uh, months to years to get back down to the 2 or 3% level. But to, to illustrate, though, uh, how the Fed actually could work in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, the inflation rate was close to 10%. Within a year or two after Volcker came in and, and applied the, the dose of, uh, of uh, unpleasant medicine, uh, inflation was back down to 3 or 4% within a couple of years. And once the marketplace uh, understood that um, the Fed was serious, they were going to kill inflation by shooting it in the head, I remind people that you know, in five years, over the next five years, the stock market tripled. Now, it's yeah. not me saying if when the Fed cures inflation, and I think they will, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, inflation is a real is a is a real problem. I think you say it best. Inflation expectations yeah. are the real problem, and I think the Fed finally is getting. Uh, I think one of the other things that seems strikingly different um, when Nixon when we went off the gold you know, pegged the dollar to the gold standard. Basically, the world lost confidence in the dollar and the dollar's value declined. You know, the demand for dollars went way down. And I think, to me, since commodities and so many things are priced in dollars, 
that is so different than today. Today we have the, the U.S. dollar is one of the strongest currencies in the world, uh, sort of at an all-time high. Uh, it's behaving very well. That gives me some optimism. And the fact that I've, I always felt like the reason we have uh, so much inflation is the federal deficit was monetized in the banking system. You saw that in an enormous growth, in uh, unprecedented growth at M2. That's kind of where all the demand, spending money, that's where people house it in the banking system. Uh, well, we see federal deficits collapse. They're still high, but I mean, they're yeah. collapsing. That's really a story about uh, revenues are really yeah. high and there's just inability to spend. Uh, that by itself, though, will also help the government pay off its deficit right. in uh, depreciated dollars. But, and uh, and then we've seen M2 collapse at the same time. So right. the money supply is collapsing. Uh, and demand for money with higher interest rates goes up. So this imbalance between supply and demand, kind of getting wonky here, uh, but to me, I, I see a light at the end of the tunnel in right. the next year where we feel like much better about inflation yeah. expectations. Now, in a sense, we've been living off our capital for the uh, last five years or so. Uh, inflation expectations are really lowered, and it, it, people probably will uh, not remember it, but we were, we were talking a couple years ago about deflation and how does the Fed get the inflation rate up to the desired 2% level, and now obviously that's all gone. But I think the reason why we were able to get away with all this for several years was that expectations had been driven down, and people believed that inflation wasn't coming back, and now that's eroding away. So it's very important for the Fed to step in and, and exercise some discipline at this point to make sure it doesn't get out of control. So again, uh, the, the great inflation of uh, 65 to 80 took 15 years to get going. And they kept making it worse by the money yeah. supply was increasing at a 10% year-over-year rate. Year and this is year. only only you know, a year or so, and, and it, it appears that the Fed is well aware of the problem and they're going to address it, although, although somewhat belatedly. And because of that, now people, as that relates to the stock market and the bond markets, because this is one of those really, in, for the I wouldn't say the first time in 40 years, we had some hic pretty fast hiccups yeah. in, in rates. Oops, sorry about that. Yeah. Um, now, the uh, strange thing is, uh, back at the... Uh, when they raised interest rates uh, back in uh, 79881881, they're raising it from 8 or 9 or 10 percent. Above that, now we're at zero, going up to 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 percent. So it's a different world. The other good thing is that uh, the, the problem we had uh, in the last 10 years, uh, what do you do about monetary policy to – uh, when, uh, when the economy is uh, not doing well, well, now it's, it's very easy to raise interest rates. We couldn't lower interest rates very much because of the zero uh, lower bound, so we had to go into quantitative easing, things of that sort. So the Fed has uh, a much more effective tool to deal with inflation than they do with uh, deflation. And I think they do it differently. Back uh, in the old days, uh, prior really to 2008, it struck me that they would drain the reserves from the banking system. That created a liquidity crisis. Yeah. A lot of companies couldn't make it, so you saw a lot of bankruptcies and liquidity events and, and it really depressed the economy. Whereas in 2008, they started doing it differently by saying, well, we're going to actually start paying interest on reserves. So we really don't have to focus on draining reserves and really creating that liquidity crisis. We're just going to increase the level of general interest rates by hiking the interest rates on reserve. To me, that's, that's also a big difference. I, I remember after 2008, 2009, I wasn't worried at all about inflation because of that. And I think for some of the same reasons, that's going to be part of the cure this time. Yeah, the Fed has... <laughs> Uh, probably more uh, more tools than they need right now that they're trying to uh, ease out of quantitative easing by uh, by selling the uh, private bonds that they bought. They still have the ability to uh, sell government bonds to extract uh, cash from the system, and so they have lots of lots of uh, tools at their disposal. So when it comes to investing now, okay, um, we tend to focus solely on retirees, but. That, you know, our advice today will be should be universal, I suspect. Um, and, and one of the things I've noticed, Ryan, is compared to like the pandemic, um, you, you went through that with clients. There was much more fear then because it was such a crisis that where is this thing going and are we even going to survive this thing? Is, is humanity going? 2008, 2009 was similar. I mean, I think, I think we were on the close to a reset yeah. button. So I think it was heightened emotions then versus, I think, in 
we haven't hardly gotten any calls and mm-hmm. I, I i'll i would tell people honestly if we've if if we got a couple of dozen calls i would tell you i i don't know that i've had one maybe one or two people sort of concerned conversations i think that is because fred you you, you laid it out that this is more of your typical type of recession okay so here we are and it makes sense. Oh, if we higher interest rates are going to cause a recession, earnings are going to go down. Therefore, company stocks aren't worth what they you know were yesterday. And the market is largely so. If this is a typical bear market, we're two thirds through it. Mm-hmm. So selling now wouldn't make any sense. Um, what are things that people might think about in a strange way to take advantage of the situation when both stocks and bonds are down? You take a Vanguard balanced index fund. I haven't looked since the last show, but the last show was down 16 or 17 percent. I wouldn't be surprised if it's down 17, 18 percent. So there's your, you know, basic vanilla balanced 60, 40 portfolio out there that might be down 15 to 20 percent. So here we are. Um, What's on your mind when you go into the workday like today? So for clients that might have like a taxable account. Um, where they're, and what you mean by that is this is a non-tax privilege or re, it's not it's a retirement not, account. It's not an of, IRA, not a 401k. It's not getting deferred um, taxes until you withdraw out of those okay. types of accounts. The taxable account designation means you're going to pay uh, some sort of um, taxes in the year for any types of um, maybe a little bit of growth of dividends and interest that's kicked off from that, that portfolio. Uh, so again, Again, not a retirement-style account. Uh, you can do what's called tax loss harvesting, which is merely looking at your positions and seeing, are there any positions that you own that are worth less than what you paid for them or what you contributed to them, uh, which is known as the cost basis. And you can just do a very simple technique of selling a position that is currently worth less than what you paid for it and buy a position back immediately. Uh, it's a different a different investment, but holds very similar holdings. For example, if it's a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, or if it's a you know an individual stock, you can swap it for maybe a similar type stock of another company. And you so you're can, not selling and getting out. You're just saying, right. hey, we're going to buy a twin cousin. Yep, a we're twin gonna, cousin. We're going to harvest the loss so that we can then use that, or if we can't use that loss completely this year, we can use it against future long-term capital gains. It kind of makes sense. The, the purpose is just, you know, a tax arbitrage. It's a, it's a, I don't even want to say it's a loophole. It's an allowed tax mechanism for, for you to be able to book a loss this year. And like you say, maybe it'll offset any gains if there's further gains this year, or if it's, if it's not this year where there's gains, it allows you to reduce up to $3,000 worth of income that you receive in the year if there are no gains this year, and then above that 3000 is carried forward. So again, to your point, Paul, yes, you're not getting out of the market. You're not changing your investment uh, goals of investing for the future. You're taking advantage of uh, tax code to get a bit of a, a tax advantage for the year. So that's a real simple strategy. It's by no means intricate. Um, you know, there are some potential things you need to consider with how long you've held the positions, if, if you've traded them within the last 30 days, and you have... And if you wanted to swap back into the original fund, you have to get past a 30-day period going forward. So there are a little bit of things to consider, but the big picture is you can reduce your taxes and also help yourself a bit. So a newly minted retiree, January 1st, uh, comes to you with a half a million dollars. Uh, 50% of it goes into the stock market day one. Not that you necessarily would have done that, but let's just Mm -hmm. assume that. So there's 250,000 in stock and 250,000 in bonds. Now the two hundred fifty thousand in stock might be worth two hundred thousand. So mm-hmm. you paid two fifty, they're worth two hundred. I sell everything that I can. I buy the equivalent, but not the exact. Uh, you know something so that we're not changing our strategy ultimately. Mm-hmm. And now I have this fifty thousand dollar tax capital loss that I can use in the future as as I need it. And if mm-hmm. I can't use it in the future, then write all of it today. I can use the 3000 against ordinary income. Okay, well, that makes sense to me. Yep. So it's, it's taking what most people are seeing as this very negative decline event and allowing yourself to, to book a positive event out of it. Um, and that's just one simple strategy anyone can do with a taxable account. And if somebody was thinking about doing a Roth conversion this year, mm-hmm. uh, 
timing can be sort of important or there's times when it's better to do it than others at all time highs it's you don't get to move as many shares of stuff in from a traditional ira to a roth Mm -hmm. so now if you have some stocks that are down 20 percent from a broad market standpoint um it might be as good a time as any if you're going to do a roth conversion this year we never know when the bottom's going to be you don't have to do all of it at once maybe if you want to hedge your bet you do half of it or more today and you do that Roth conversion now so that you end up putting more shares of these stock funds because you want to pay the tax outside of it, uh, not from the sales proceeds itself. So that compared to a year ago, you're really putting, you know, 20% more shares into that, which ultimately if they go back to all time highs as they certainly must, uh, I can't tell you when, only that they will. Uh, of course, you're the regulator for us. I know that you're the. <laughs> you probably don't like me saying that. No, I think if history is any guide, we will go back to all-time highs in the broad, right. broadest sense. You're not saying, obviously, that you know what's going to happen. Correct. Only that the likelihood is is quite high that it will happen. And we don't know when. C- correct. And if it doesn't, then we got bigger issues, yeah. and uh, the radio show probably could never address. Uh, okay, so there's there's another thing people can do. Um, so there are things you can do. Yep. The other thing, what about this? Um, rebalancing, oddly enough, hasn't been as frequent because you've had bond prices uh, anywhere down from 5 to 15%. Uh, so they're, while they're not falling in lockstep, there really hasn't been the typical rebalancing right. that you would get with a 20% decline. You would be selling bonds and buying, refurbishing your stock portion of your allocation, with not doing so much of that. No, certainly it's it is kind of unique in that regard because normally that is a technique that you have or a tool at your disposal during a decline is to be able to acquire more shares of stocks while they're temporarily re- reduced or I know the way you like to say it sometimes they're on sale. So the the things we already want anyway, the stocks that produce the greatest growth and are the driver of the greatest amount of return in our portfolios, hey, they're on sale. Why wouldn't you want to load up on some more of those because we know we need them to fund presumably the next 30 years of a retiree's lifestyle. Um, But in this particular event, like you say, it's not that it's in lockstep, but for most part, the stocks and bonds have almost kind of kept pretty close in pace with that, with each other. We did just got a text, kind of we just addressed it, but there's a point I want to make. It says, would you recommend a Roth conversion since the market is down? The conversion would be from a stock index fund into the same stock index fund. Now that would be allowed. They can be the same because Mm -hmm. we're not not tax loss harvesting. the idea is you really don't have to sell that. You could just, you know, tell your custodian, I want to, uh, I have this Roth account or I need to open a Roth account so I can do a Roth conversion and just move X many dollars worth of shares of that index fund from the traditional IRA to the Roth. Right. Um, any Anything else that's, what about, what about this? Um, you guys know I sent an email to all you advisors saying, look, if you have anybody that's been dollar cost averaging, we can talk about that in a minute, what dollar cost averaging is, saying, hey, I'm chicken to put it all in today as, a, as an investor, so I'm going to put it in over the next six or nine months in equal increments or some format. If you're doing that, speed it up quite a bit. In other words, if you have uh, six more months to go, you know, put a few more months in today. That's one option we can do. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. And then the other is, um, it seems like for the last couple of years, we've been increasingly conservative when we create a financial plan for a retiree um, by kind of stressing it more, saying, eh, we need to be a little more bulletproof. So we've tend to, for new retirees over the last couple of years, I can just tell you this compared to what old Paul I've been, you know, hey, let's be 30, 40, or 50% invested if, 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 if we're going to be invested in the great companies of America and the world. And I might have started someone out at 60 or 70%. Uh, I'm just kind of being a little bit arbitrary here. But uh, suppose um, you retired a year or two ago. Uh, we're pretty conservative on the front end. Now we have this opportunity when stock expected returns are high to maybe increase our allocation from 50% to 60%, for mm-hmm. example, and make, make that a permanent decision. We're not going back and forth based on markets. We just sort of hedged our bet on the way into retirement because we have to be so careful in the first five years that now here's an opportunity that, you know, we really wouldn't mind being 60% stocks, all things being equal, instead of 
maybe now is as good a time to do that as any. Yeah, you, you guys don't feel as strong about that. I maybe you can speak for the other advisors, but my sense is you guys think that's a little gimmicky. Uh, I don't think it's gimmicky. I think it comes down to um, Fred in- thinks it's gimmicky. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let we'll let Fred weigh in next. Um, I think it just comes down to the appetite for the investor. You know, if if they if there's someone who's a, a, a stock person, they were big into stocks. They probably acquired a lot of wealth over a period of maybe 30, 40 years of of investing during their working years. That is a, a particularly good client where you say, all right, listen, I'm on board with you. I agree with that that philosophy that stocks are what drive our ultimate growth in our portfolio. But I can't ignore the fact that I need to fund a 30 to 35 year potential retirement time frame. And there is a tremendous risk that we can take off the table on the very front end. Like you mentioned, five years, some research shows all the way upwards is maybe as many as 15 years. The first five to 15 years of a a person's retirement has a potentially big impact on the rest of their retirement for the sole purpose being at this sequence of returns risk. At the very front end, what if you just happen to be the unlucky retiree who retires today and no sooner than you retire than you're the one that sees that big 30, 40, 50% decline? One that really lingers that on lingers. for years like the Great Depression did, that you know where the stock market fell 80 to 85%, the broad market, and it took years to recover. Right. So it's not that you know you you or I or anyone else is saying stocks aren't necessarily the appropriate investment choice. It's just that we have to have this balance in place where we're weighing this big risk of a thirty-year retirement time frame. What if you just get that bad draw, like a bad set of cards in a card game that just it's not your fault. You just got a bad draw that time, and you have to now fund this thirty-year time horizon. Uh, and you were maybe a little stock heavy, and right. now your positions are down quite a bit. Meanwhile, you're still withdrawing, presumably, right. from that asset base, that investment account. Um, so for a client who says, you know, I'm a big stock person, that's a conversation you have. Say so maybe this is a time where we we evaluate going from 50 to 55 or 55 to 60% stock exposure when they These were- guys are sissies, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the other thing, there's no place to hide now. If you're in cash, you're losing 8% a year. So waiting around to invest, if, uh, if you're cash or near cash, is costly as well. So you have a situation where um, cash is being eroded by inflation. Uh, the bond market and the stock market have both been down. So it's a, a challenging yeah, it, situation. It, it's just my general nature that I see the biggest risk in a three-decade in retirement is the grinding down of your purchasing power or rising you know, cost of living. And bonds don't really do anything to protect that. They have their purpose in a portfolio, that's for sure. But the only thing that has a chance of uh, really offsetting that, not only offsetting it, but maybe enhancing your standard of living through a three-decade retirement, is the returns uh, from the great companies of America and the world, the premium returns they've historically given uh, over bonds, net of taxes and inflation. And I'm perfectly comfortable. I suppose when I'm retired, uh, even if I'm older when I retire, I'll probably never be less than 80% equities. But that I, I have a, a, a temperature right. uh, that I can right. hand that, that most people can't. And I don't think that's inappropriate. I'm not sure most retirees can handle it. Their plans could, uh, but the emotion might be a little bit too strong at times. Um, so, But certainly 60 or 70%, to me, should probably be table stakes throughout much of retirement. We just have to be careful on the front end. And so that was just my way of saying, hey, we have this opportunity. Mm-hmm. How many times have you heard me tell clients, look, we're going to be really careful on the front end. And probably what you're afraid of is a big decline in the stock market or bond market on the front end of retirement. And that scares everybody. So here's the good news. If we're lucky enough to get that big decline, and if we're lucky enough that it's big enough, Right. We will lean into it, and at that point, I will gleefully increase your stock market exposure by ten to twenty percent. Mm-hmm. And and I I think people say in times that are you know good the stock market's <laughs> calm. Do it. That, oh yeah, that's a, what a wise you know very informed decision that that would be. And then they get there and they say. Yeah, you know, I know I did say that, but right now I'm really nervous. Yeah, you know that phone call. Uh, uh, Mary, uh, remember we talked uh, two years ago about if we're lucky enough to get that decline at 20%? Mm-hmm. Yep, we got it. You're right. You, oh, you saw that. Yep, we, we got that. And so here's what I'm thinking. Oh, what, oh, should we sell? 
No, no, no. I, that's not really not what I'm thinking. I, I was actually married. Remember, we talked about going from 50% stocks to maybe 60 or 65. And, you know, so that's the conversation because it it's real easy in calm times to say, yeah. oh yeah, I'll behave rationally when we get this, mm-hmm. you know, this gleeful decline of 20 or 30%. Yeah. And when the heat of the battle and you're hearing all these things on things on CNBC, it quickly changes our risk appetite. Yeah. Right. The other thing, <clears throat> getting into Maybe a somewhat different question, but it really depends. You're talking about someone who's living off their portfolio. If you have for someone, the part that's supplementing their but, retirement But, but if you have Social Security and lucky enough to have a pension, then you probably could be more risky in terms of your uh, allocation because that's more like a fixed income. Uh, it's not a security, but you can treat it like a, a fixed income. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think you guys deal with we that a that. lot. I mean, yep. you, you get somebody who is pension rich, say a, a University of Illinois employee, not that they're pension rich, but it's a it's a substantial part of their retirement income. It has some level of cost of living adjustment. Uh, much less of their supplemental income is likely to come from their investment portfolio. So they can they can put up with more unpredictability there versus someone who has maybe a small social security check and they have they've worked at craft for 30 years and they have uh, three quarters of a million dollars and maybe two-thirds of their income is going to come from that investment yeah. portfolio mm-hmm. then that's that variability or unpredictability that really that you're, you're right Fred I mean there, there is no one-size-fits-all if there's if we've learned anything about this uh, there is no one-size-fits-all yeah but I, I definitely agree with your point dr. Gertz that 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 is something we consider that's it's not just you know, piecemeal individually giving advice. It's looking at the entire client's portfolio plus their income streams. And we do, we do look at clients who have maybe a university pension or other pension where, especially if it's a cost of living adjustment um, increase year to year, maybe like a 3% cost of living. Okay, so we have a broad U.S. Um, decline of 20%. Um, we have bonds that have done something they haven't done probably since the 40s, fallen substantially in price in a short period of time. There were some periods in the 90s that were, you know, the Fed increased uh, Fed funds in a pretty short period of time from 3% to 6%, but I still wouldn't put that in this category. I'd say it's more like the 40s after the war uh, where we had some higher inflation and, and some of those things. Um, I'm just starting to think where I was going with that. Where do, where do you think I was going with that? <laughs> Some, I start thinking about all these things in years, and I and I forget what I'm saying. Oh, so what? So what about that newly minted retirement retiree that you had maybe from a year ago, six mm-hmm. months ago, two years ago? You built a plan for them to theoretically withstand uh, not only a mild. Uh, recession or a mile or a standard bear market being down 20 25 percent in the broad mm-hmm. u.s market but we've also stress test well here's what it's going to look like mr and mrs smith if we get the great financial crisis anytime soon um how are those plans holding up for those particular investors yep. um as of late I and had, if you've had significant changes say it yeah I, i've had one client call and this is a perfect example actually uh who is not retired, but moved their assets over to us um, about a year ago now. So there is substantial decline in terms of just dollar number from a year sure. ago till today. And so uh, she called yesterday and said, you know, I'm so worried. Everything has just been going down. It's been going down. I've been watching the news all day. I've not been working. I've been watching the news and I'm really concerned, but I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned with you, but I'm really concerned about the number in my account. So am I okay? So. What am I going to be okay? Do I need to make changes to my plan? Do I need to potentially work longer? These are the kinds of like the questions that weren't asked, but I can hear them in my own head of thinking, course. you know, what does it mean? So take a step beyond just my portfolios down. Does this mean that I'm no longer on track anymore to retire either in the timing or in the lifestyle that I had hoped for when we met a year ago? And I was able to go into the plan Uh, with this client on the phone and say, you know, we had planned on this particular lifestyle at this period of time. And we had, the plan was performing what we call it a performance of a 95% basis, meaning there's a 5% chance we're going to have to make a change to this plan. The plan starting out at 95 a year later is now down at 94. So So, arguably, I might say that's being too conservative, but I think, but during times like this, the clients want to kiss you for being too conservative. 
maybe they want to do that. Maybe they say, wow, what a difference of looking at a plan versus a portfolio. If you look at the portfolio, everything looks grim. And if that's the, your, only, your only view, which it is for most, most investors, right? There's half of people don't have an advisor in their life. They're managing their own investments on their own. So what do they do? Probably one of two things, if not both. They're logging into their 401ks, presumably, and seeing what the, the decline is. Or they're tuning into CNN or Fox News or whatever their, their news station is and seeing what is probably the peril of the day. The Dow Jones has dropped 900 points. turmoil. Right. That's, that's and, NBC, and, NBC. And they're drumming up this like fear. And that only couples with the fact that you look at your, your account balance or maybe you're talking with your colleagues at work who are saying, oh, I remember this. I went to cash and I got out and I got safe. This is like this is a real conversation I had yesterday that this client was hopefully, um, you know, talked off the ledge, even though she admitted she wasn't on the ledge. She just wanted reassurance. Um, she said, I can't help it. I've been home all day watching TV. That didn't help me. I talked to my colleagues who have literally stopped making contributions to their 401ks because of this. What you and I would call as, a, as investors and investment advisors is a perfectly normal so, almost expected decline. Translation, you built the plan. If it was a beach house, you build it for a category four or five. Hurricane. Hurricane. What did I say? Just category four or five. Oh, category, I'm filling hurricane. in the blanks for the rest of the listeners here. And, uh, you know, thanks. Everybody needs a translator. <laughs> and your client's out of town. So they, they don't know what their uh, condominium or house on the beach looks like. You say, And they call you and they say, Ryan, I've been hearing about this horrible storm or hurricane that we're having. And, you know, is my place still there? You go, yeah, I just drove by. Um, uh, yeah, one shingle fell off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's basically it. Oh, well, remember, we built yours as for a Category 5 direct hit. This is, this is nothing but a little tropical storm that's, you know, broke a few branches of a tree and, yeah. uh, and, a, and, a, and one shingle. Yep. I like that one shingle. <laughs> I like it. Um, I, I, it makes it tangible maybe yeah. for people. There's a psychological trick too if you're in a 401k or 403b uh, because part of your losses are losses to the government because whatever your if you're 20% tax rate or the government's your partner, or, right? Right. So they're, they're, your partner takes when you win and uh, has to give up when you lose. So part of your, your loss actually is not a loss of spending power. Well, I know from experience now that you brought up 401ks because it's classic – it's the universal uh, universal propensity for people to blow themselves up along the way, snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. So people in a 401k plan are building for a retirement, presumably. Um, you know, they need as many shares of stock and bond mutual funds as they can get. They are now 20% lower than they were a few months ago. So they're on sale, which sounds corny, but that's the the prices are going back up ultimately, but for right now, they're 20% off, and what are people doing? I guarantee you that I could go into any 401k plan and find maybe one out of four people that have done one of these things, if not more. Well, I used to put in 6%, but now I made it zero. I'm not adding any more money to my 401k. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's strike one. It's a bad one because it should be. You know what? I'm going to bite the bullet even with this inflation, and I'm going to increase it by two percent from six to eight percent, which is really a twenty-three, thirty-three percent increase. Um, or it's you know what? I can't take it anymore. I was watching CNBC all night from two in the morning to five in the morning. I just couldn't sleep. And first thing I did when I got in is I went to cash. I went to money market fund. <laughs> so some combination of those things is going on right now as we speak. And it's one of the biggest mistakes, financial mistakes, people will make in their life. But they're they're just going to do that. Yeah. And I think if they will think of it as the opposite, saying, no, I need as many shares as I can. They're on sale. I'm buying more shares this pay period than I did last time. Whoever ends up with the most shares wins and gets the best retirement. That contrary to what people think intuitively, these declines do not push retirement further. They pull it closer. For, for people who, agree? yeah, for people who aren't can, done buying yet, yeah, who aren't done buying yet, and maybe make the appropriately wise decisions um, to maybe exercise a greater emphasis in their, you know, contributions during a down period and not pull back. Um, in the minimum, 
if you just do nothing, you don't you don't pull back, you don't go to cash, you still acquire more shares than you would have otherwise. What percent of your clients are like this, sort of living on what they have with no expectation of uh, of a bequest? I, I suspect a, a large number of people are, expect to uh, die with a large amount of left in their account. And if they are in that situation, you're basically playing with your heirs' money rather than and reducing your lifestyle. Largely. I would say that's that's 90% of our clients are classic millionaires next door, um, you know, between their house and their portfolios. Um, they've been frugal. Um, they don't hate their children. Uh, for most of them, that's the second priority, not the first. The first mm-hmm. priority, and I think this describes most people out there, is, hey, I've worked for this money. My, you know, my spouse and I have worked for this money. We worked hard. We're really trying to maximize our, or at least have the standard of living that we've always enjoyed, or or then some, as they describe it. And if there's something left for the kids, that would be great, and we can give them an idea. It's a pretty wide distribution of outcomes. So in, in many ways, Fred, you know, um, we really be hard. You could design a plan if you went out of your way to run in, to, you know, you take your last breath with your last dollar. Most people aren't comfortable with that strategy. So we build in such a margin for error, which I call margin for life, that usually means, well, this is anecdotal, but I say this to prospective clients all the time. I don't have any clients that have been with me for a measurable period of time, I would say at least 10 years or more, that haven't spent a lot of their, spent a lot of money, and that don't have more money than they had. Maybe not today in a 20% decline in the broad market. But given time, uh, any time you add to that 10-year period, I can pretty much assure you that it looks to me like the, if, if I followed our process and I've audited it against every piece of data that we've had, it strikes me that a reasonable expectation is when I take my last breath, I'll probably be close to the zenith of the amount of money I had. Uh, so in, in some ways, I think you're right. I think investors can say, you know what, I, this probably isn't going to have any impact on me. It may, it may reduce my legacy, uh, but, you know, but it, it may or may not. But that's not the priority uh, concern. So it, uh, that's, that's the way I would put it. Would you say that's the case? I agree. I think most people are, you know, they're hoping to leave a legacy, but it isn't the primary decision. It's not the driving event for why they're invested and what they're doing, what they're doing. Some folks it is, but it's pretty rare at least with our client base. I think so. They have an interest in it. Um, uh, you know, and we do measure it uh, in mm-hmm. every plan. But again, it's such a wide distribution. It might yeah. be, well, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, it's probably on the low end, at least a half a million dollars in today's dollars. And it could be as much as $2 million. But it's somewhere in between there. And you can drive a truck through that one. And that's a good buffer. <laughs> it <laughs> is a buffer because it's not really necessarily pegged to legacy issue. I look at it this way. When I describe, because um, frankly, from a planning standpoint, whether you have 30% to 70% of your money in the stock market or the great companies of America, from a, we generally can't start out with any significant difference in how much you can spend from that portfolio. Where it really ends up in magnitude is that legacy value. But what I would say is you don't have to use it. If that legacy value is building because returns have been even halfway decent, that it just as well means increased lifestyle expectations in the future. Um, that's what any decent planning process, I think, is going to uh, do for their clients. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's all anyone's hoping for is maybe I can get both. You know, it's not a desire, but maybe I can do both. I can live an enjoyable life that I wanted on my terms. I can spend. I have the chance to increase spending. Oh, and on top of it, I can also leave this nice bequest to the family that I love. But you, you guys are seeing as each year as you guys develop in this business – and for every, you know, you've been through several now uh, of significant declines, you could see the beauty of a plan. And uh, this isn't a commercial. You don't have to do, a, you know, have a plan created by Rudy Wealth Management. Um, but that, think of the difference. You're doing this by yourself. You've seen your $500,000 portfolio is suddenly $400,000. And you, so you've, you've on, in your mind, you're going to use the words, I lost $100,000, and it used to take me four years to make $100,000. And you feel like you got to do something to make you're alone. You don't know what it means to you. You don't know if that's, you know it's bad, but you don't know, does that mean I should change my spending? Does that mean I should not go on vacation this year and take that trip or take the kids to Disney World? Mm-hmm. 
uh, versus having a plan and you have those same feelings. You're watching the same news programs. You're kind of in a tizzy, you know, like, holy cow, this, this thing is imploding from everywhere. And you call your advisor and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm really worried. Am I okay? And you say, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, basically, your plan's needle hasn't moved at all. We're still pretty close to overfunded. And let me remind you what that means is we're a lot closer to me calling you to tell you you can spend more than to spend a modest amount less. That's such a huge difference. And people, half the people at least, from everything I read, all the surveys, do not have such a plan. And I don't know if they do it because they think it costs too much, but to me, the costliest thing, it's, it's, it's the costliest thing is not to have that plan in place. Because if you can continuously act on a plan as opposed to continuously reacting to current events, that's a complete different lifestyle. It's a complete different emotion. Uh, and, and I don't know how anybody could be happy in retirement financially. And for most people do it on their own. Yeah. I really don't. And, and there's also the opportunity cost that you just, if you're, let's say you're investing on your own, you don't have an advisor and you say, well, the market's down 10%, I'm going to I'm gonna hold back spending 10% just in lockstep, for example. The opportunity cost is, well, maybe you're not spending as much month to month. You're not taking that vacation that your family, you know, was excited about or that you were presumably building great family memories and, and you know, times with. You know, we got about another minute. You know, the 4% rule that we always talk so much about and people read so much about, Bill Bingham has decided that he's not going to follow his, his rule that everybody's been talking about for 30-plus <laughs> years. Here's the guy that created the rule yeah. that emotionally cannot use his own rule any longer because of inflation. And I would like to remind him that, Bill, you checked this over the inflation area. <laughs> you talked about retiring right. in 1966, or he says 68 is the worst year. Uh, I'll call it a tie. And that sh that told me everything I needed to know about how difficult it is yeah, as right. an investor when you're actually retired and when the stakes are high that the person that is quoted every day in the newspaper and on the media, the 4% rule, yeah. will, has told people he's not following his own rule. He doesn't think he can spend 4%. Right. And he's changed his allocation dynamics completely. If that doesn't, it tells me after 39 years, that one event told me that p investors on their own don't have a chance. They need a competent advisor, which probably sounds like a commercial. I think it's a fact. Anyway, Dr. Fred, always great to have you in. The, Good to be here. We'll talk more in a couple of weeks about the economy. And uh, Ryan Repko, thanks for joining me on Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. If you're feeling panicked, call 217-356-1400. You don't have to become a client. We'll try to talk you off the ledge. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.